You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey friends, great to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman completing all their powers is in the fight. And right now, here today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, so very, very good to have you with us today. I uh, I want you to know how important it is that we as disciples are out there on the cutting edge of the fight. I, I was I was going to uh, this morning, uh, going out to the abortion clinic. Uh, now I, I go out there on a weekly basis, and this, by the way, is the abortion clinic that's in that Supreme Court case. Uh, uh, I we do this podcast ahead of the announcement of what's going to happen uh, with the Supreme Court case. It's dealing right now with Roe v. Wade, uh, but whatever happens, uh, I want you to know that we're out there on a weekly basis. But, and you know, I'm thinking, all right, so we're out there on a weekly basis. I'm, I'm, I'm headed to the abortion clinic and I hear a talk radio guy say, listen, I have chosen to be on the front lines of this fight. And according to him, the front lines of the fight are what he's doing, which is sitting behind a microphone and talking. And folks, <laughs> I want to I tell you, I've done plenty of that in my life. Uh, you know that I've had talk radio programs. You know that I've been, but I've never considered talking into a microphone the front lines. I've never considered that even that important of a job. Now, I think it can add, add as a support to those who are out there on the front lines. But no, if you want to be on the front lines, you got to push yourself away from the microphone and actually go do something. Not just talk about something into a microphone, but go do something. Same way with writing. Listen, I write books and used to write a newspaper column. And I, I think it was kind of a consequential newspaper column. Fact of the matter is I never considered that the front lines. I always considered writing about those people who were on the front lines, who were in the fight, who were right there on the edge where hand-to-hand -hand combat spiritually speaking, takes place. But y'all, let's be honest, talking into a microphone or doing what I'm doing right now, doing a podcast, this isn't the fight. This is talking into a microphone. I hope that it encourages, it encourages you to be on the fight, in the fight, to be out there on the cutting edge, to doing the spiritual hand-to-hand -hand combat that the Lord calls you to. Uh, but uh, so, so I go out there and I don't consider myself all that effective at the abortion clinic. I went out to a prison earlier. I, I love going out to the prison. When I preach at a prison, I feel God's pleasure. Remember Eric Little in Chariots of Fire? I feel that way with preaching at the prison. When I preach in a prison, I feel his pleasure. Oh, my goodness. And by the way, one of those guys got out last night and made a beeline for my church. I wasn't there. But one of the lady, lay, uh, 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 lay women of our one of the leading lay women of our church was there, called me up. What do I do? Said, well, call this guy up and he's right across the street and we'll take care of the fella. But I always tell him, listen, come by the church. We'll do everything we can to help you. And the truth is my executive pastor is one of those guys that came by the church, 
stayed in the church, worked in the church, became a terrific minister in church, and now he's my executive pastor. So we we love that. that to me, that's frontline ministry. To be on a, at an abortion clinic is frontline ministry. To talk about prison ministry, not frontline ministry. To talk about discipleship, not frontline ministry. To talk into a talk radio show microphone, no, 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 not the front lines. So I, I say all that to just say this. Those of you who are out there that are actually making disciples, you're meeting in groups, you're encouraging those groups and going with them out to the fight, out to the prisons, out to the hungry, the thirsty, the poor, the disenfranchised. All those of you who are doing that, thank you. I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, thank you. So I, I go out to the abortion clinic. I say all that to say this. Went out to the abortion clinic and I see two brothers standing there, two guys, David and Doug Lane. Two guys are graduates from our seminary, Wesley Biblical Seminary, that have been out there for 38 years. 38 years they've been out at the abortion clinic. And let me just say from the bottom of my heart, that's being in the fight. What they call, what they call that is a long obedience in the same direction. They've been doing this for 38 years, and boy, have they ever made a difference. Uh, have they ever saved thousands of lives? Have they ever added inspiration to other people who weren't yet in the fight like me, who decided to get in the fight like them for the glory of God and the saving of babies at an abortion clinic? These 38 years. And so I was out there this morning. By the way, it's supposed to be 105 degrees heat index in, in uh, Jackson, Mississippi today and just sweating away. I, as I was leaving, and I couldn't wait to leave, as I was leaving the abortion clinic, I looked at one of the brothers, and he was starting to sweat through the khakis that he uh, had on. He said, I, said, I said, dude, way to go, man. I, I love you so much. You're sweating through your pants. He said, he kind of grinned. He says, ah, that's what fat boys do. I said, no, that's what obedient guys do. Obedient to the call of Jesus on their life to go where no one else wants to go to do things no one else wants to do, to give things no one else wants to give, to be guys no one else wants to be in hard, dark places. In fact, I consider that the most evil place in Mississippi. We've got some evil places in Mississippi, y'all. So do you in your state. But I consider that right there the most evil place in all of Mississippi. And they've been out at that place for 38 straight years. Weekly, sometimes daily, and, and these days is daily. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for all of you who are that kind of person. I just want you to know you're an inspiration to us all. Now, I want to get through the business of the day, and that is intimacy with God. Uh, we're going to do a, a multi-podcast series on this. Just want you to know I've been real encouraged by this message. The first one is kind of uh, for sort of brainiacs of people who are trying to figure out where are you getting this intimacy thing from Scripture. And so we're going to do that. One of the things I find fascinating is a lot of people struggle with this whole intimacy thing with God. Uh, I think Probably our culture's taught us to think about God kind of like the, the deism of America's founding fathers. You know, God kind of started the clock and it's tick, tick, ticking, but it's tick, 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 tock, ticking over there. And there's never really an engagement between me and God. But I want you to know he wants engagement. I think we've been taught 
about the higher power of our recovery programs. And by the way, I love the 12-step programs. I love Celebrate Recovery. But sometimes I think the higher power of the 12-step programs can make God distant. He's higher. He's up. He's away from us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to be helped. But this intimacy with him that he wants us to have, uh, the whole force, the force, the force of the Star Wars series makes whatever. If that's God, then he's just a force. He's not personal. Uh, I think sometimes he's just an invisible problem solver for us. If we just pray, things begin happening. But we forget that we're praying to someone who's closer to us than we are to ourselves. Remember the Bette Midler song, From a Distance? I think a lot of us view God as, hey, he's looking at us from a distance. He's pleased. He's not pleased. Uh, and then, of course, oh, <laughs> the Indiana Jones Lost Ark. Oh, my goodness. Anybody see the first Indiana Jones? Utterly terrifying in the end. And I think we view God as utterly terrifying, but not lovingly intimate. And then I think Christians have a truncated theology all too much. We think of God as the awesome one and too little as God as the intimate one, the loving one of our souls. Again, that loves us more than we love ourselves. By the way, I think both are true. He is an awesome one, the God who is out there, the God who is transcendent, the God who is above and beyond us. He is also <laughs> imminent. He's also personal. He's also very much with us. Well, that's why it's important for us to read all the Bible. And when we get into both Old and New Testament, what we see is that the major ancient Jewish perspective differs from what we've been taught culturally. God is seen as the bridegroom in Old Testament history. Now, bride and bridegroom, now we're talking intimacy. And that's exactly how God wants to be seen. Hey, I'm the bridegroom. All of human history, then, is kind of a divine love story. And it has a centering event, and it has a centering place. That would be Mount Sinai. The center was a divine wedding, and a covenant was given at that center. And so this whole thing of covenant, it's basically a covenant is a sacred family bond between persons that establishes a permanent and a sacred relationship. Once the sacrifice has been made, there's usually a banquet involved. We're going to see plenty of that in Scripture. Now, So God is the bridegroom, and the 12 tribes of Jacob therefore constitute the bride. And so sin is, hey, I'm not just breaking a rule. Sin is, hey, I'm not just breaking a law. But sin, therefore, becomes the betrayal of a relationship and the act of, get a load of this now, the act of spiritual adultery. So I want to tell you, I've been reading some books about all this. Brant Petrie's uh, volume called Jesus, the Bridegroom, the greatest love story ever told, and various resources from a guy named Dennis Kinlaw. You need to look Dennis Kinlaw up on Amazon, just get anything that he wrote, because it is marvelous, the stuff he teaches. One of the things Kinlaw loves is the whole nuptial metaphor that looms large throughout biblical history. For instance, he says, listen, before Adam was even created, there was a trinity. One was a father, another was a son. So the original family was not human, in other words. It was the very life of the triune God. Man was made in that image of that family God, that relational God. So when we start using family terms to describe God, it's no human projection. It's what God wants. So he wants us to relate to each, us, to each other in the same way that the Trinity related to one another. So father... 
Son, Spirit. Three distinct persons. They're not separate from one another, but they're distinct, and yet one God. But how do the persons treat one another? With intimacy, with self-giving love, communicating. There are roles for every one of those members of the Trinity, and there is purpose. Now, if you think about that list, wow, what a great list for premarital training. <laughs> what a great list on, hey, this is how we ought to be treating one another, church. This is how we ought to be treating each other. How about family? This is the way families ought to operate. Let me re read that list again. Father, Son, and Spirit. What did they do with one another? Well, there is intimacy and self-giving love. There's communication. There are roles. There is purpose. And if you got all that, you've got something substantial in your family, in your church, and yes, in your relationship with God. So let's, let's start dealing with the marriage thing. The Bible is basically, if you think about it, bracketed by marriages. You got Adam and Eve in Genesis and the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. So Adam and Eve, Genesis, marriage supper, so it begins and ends with marriages. Think about this, the mark of the covenant. Anybody remember what that was? It was on the penis, the very point of male knowledge of the female. Now, recall the Hebrew word for knowledge. It's yada. And most of us in the Western world think, when we think of knowledge, we think of head knowledge, cognitive knowledge, that which we can understand with our brain. But for the Hebrew, knowledge for them was to experience, to encounter. So God wants us to know him, know about him. Yeah, sure, we ought to know about him, but to experience him, to encounter him, to yada him. And so when we say the mark of the covenant was on the penis, one of the reasons I think it's on the penis, it's the very point of male knowledge, male yada of the female. So the covenant is bound symbolically at the place where bride and bridegroom come to know each other when they become sexually united and sexually active. Let's keep going with this whole understanding of marriage and the family in the Godhead. Remember the Ten Commandments. It says, honor your father and mother. Kaved is the same word we use to glorify God, which is kavod. Kaved is the same word. It's appropriate so that our parents are the human symbols in our life of our eternal father. We should give our parents respect and a logical kind of like to that which is due God. That's how important God wants the family unit to be in his kingdom. Now, the most graphical biblical imaging of God's covenant relationship with, uh, with Israel is that book Hosea. Boy, go read that. It basically says to the prophet, to Hosea, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So Yahweh couches his covenantal relationship to Israel in marital terms. He thinks it's appropriate that he representatively illustrate in his life the situation in which God, in which Yahweh finds himself. So what we've come up with so far is, oh my goodness, this God wants to communicate himself through the family, through the idea of the family, through the concept of family, through the picture of family, but even more particularly 
through the picture of bride and bridegroom, through husband and wife. Boy, does that ever come into reality for us in the book of Hosea. By by the way, Ezekiel picks up on this theme. He pictures Israel as a child of an Amorite father and a Hittite mother who was cast into the wilderness by her parents and left alone to die. So Yahweh sees the forsaken child and takes, washes, feeds, clothes, nurtures the child. When the child reaches the age of love, Yahweh chooses her for his own bride and claims her for himself. And his comment is, and you became mine. Nevertheless, Israel had a wandering heart and gave herself to other lovers. Jeremiah speaks of God's election of Israel in marital terms. Go, says Jeremiah, proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you love me and follow me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares, Yahweh declares, the Lord. In Jeremiah, go to chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. This, 1 through 11. this was a chapter Jesus had in mind when he found the worship in the temple in Jerusalem offensive and he cleansed the temple. So what Jeremiah does, he's, he tells of a society, his own, where the alien, the fatherless, the widow, and the helpless have become prey. Stealing, perjury, murder, adultery, all these things are commonplace. Even the house of God is a den of thieves. So God reminds Jeremiah that he had left the former holy place, Shiloh, because of that kind of conduct. And he tells Jeremiah, I will withdraw my presence from this, the holy city. And the sign of the absence of God Get a load of this now. How will we know he's gone? There is a disappearance of the joyous music of the bride and bridegroom. You can see this very thing four times across Jeremiah. Chapter 7, chapter 16, chapter 25, chapter 33. The sign of the absence of God is the disappearance of the joyous music of the bride and the bridegroom. And, And that's why Dennis Kinlaw says, the sign of the absence of God is that disappearance of the joyous music of bride and groom. When God goes, his blessing goes with him and his judgment remains. And there's no greater greater blessing for a nation or for a culture than the joyous music of the bride and the bridegroom. So Isaiah comes along. And Isaiah says in uh, chapter 62, No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hezebah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now the Hebrew here, I mean, it makes this passage all the more poignant because Hezebah is Hebrew Hebrew for my delight is in her. Beulah in Hebrew means married. So this land of Beulah, the promised land, is actually a married land. (laughs) So this way of thinking about God's relationship with Israel became much earlier than with the prophets. This is seen in the use of language of idolatry and adultery from Israel's earliest days as a nation 
because they're in covenant with Yahweh and they keep wanting to go on and have other partners other than Yahweh. So this marriage metaphor so permeated Israel's thought that it determined the Old Testament's usage of the word for adultery and harlotry. So Israel's disobedience is seen not as a breaking of a legal code, but as a violation of a personal marriage covenant. And Israel's worship of gods other than Yahweh is described as prostitution. Exodus 34, Yahweh describes the worship of idols by Israel's neighbors in terms of prostitution. So when God appears to Moses before his valedictory to Israel, we're told the Lord said to Moses, you're going to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. Therefore, when we look at Sinai, we look at Exodus 19 and 20. A lot of people want to just say, hey, man, all I see there is the law. All I see is political terms. But not really, at least not only. The covenant into which Israel is entering has legal characteristics, but it's so much more. From God's perspective, it's primarily nuptial. It's primarily marriage. God is taking a bride. So this whole thinking of Yahweh's relationship to Israel, nuptial terms, basically the New Testament writers just take it for granted. So when John's explaining why some of his disciples are now going over to Jesus in John 3, it, it's articulated this way. A man can receive only what's given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. So the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And it's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine says John the baptizer, and it's now complete. He, Jesus, must become greater. I, John, must become less. So John understood that his relationship to Jesus is like that of a best man to a bridegroom friend. He viewed the mission of Christ in nuptial, in marriage terms. So the writer expects his readers to understand this, to get this, to get the metaphor. And by the way, same thing happens in Mark 2 when Jesus explains why his disciples don't fast in bride and bridegroom terms. Listen, when you had a wedding, you didn't fast. What you did was you celebrated. And Jesus is saying, my disciples, my attendants, they're with me right now. I'm the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And right now what's happening is we're getting ready. We are having <laughs> a, a, a great movement towards consummation. And right now we're partying. And so the kingdom of God becomes very much a party as Jesus goes around and heals and loves and teaches. Yeah. First miracle of the Bible. Uh, first, not it was the first miracle of the gospel. John, anyway, is where? It's at a Cana wedding. And the miracle is in the context of his mother urging him on. So the redemption of the world begins with a wedding feast and will end with the wedding of Christ and his church. So when we think in terms of human sexuality, it's Paul's key to understand the church. In Ephesians 5, he addresses the question of how a husband should relate to his wife. He says that Christ's example on the cross is the love a husband should have for a wife. 
Then Paul introduces the church as the body of Christ, and he uses Genesis 2 to do it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so Dennis Kennell writes about it this way. The metaphor of marital reality is primary in explaining the nature of the church. You must understand marriage between God and people in order to understand the nature of the church. You must understand marriage between man and woman here on planet Earth in order to understand the nature of what God is and wants to do in this world. By the way, get, get to Revelation. Oh my goodness, you're talking about exciting stuff. The last six chapters of Revelation give us the climax of this marriage metaphor. Now, there's no question the royal and legal metaphor is there. Hallelujah, our God Almighty reigns. That's king stuff. That's royal stuff there. Our God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory because the king, the royal amongst us, deserves glory. But the next line, the climax is this. Chapter 19, verse 7, 8. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. By the way, we're given a great picture of the final judgment. Chapter 20. Verse 4 and 11 to 15, when we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared how? How? Prepared as a bride. <laughs> prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So one of the seven angels says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Not surprisingly, we find a final invitation to salvation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. So the human story that began with a wedding comes to its end. The wedding in the Garden of Eden and every other wedding in human history, including the one at Canaan and Galilee, prefigures this end. There's going to be a royal wedding, the one in which the father gives a bride to his son. And here's the key. You, my dear friends, are the bride. Revelation 17. Babylon is shown as the alternative to Israel. The other people of the earth who are not Yahweh's people. So what's the sin? We already know what the sin is, right? We're dealing with nuptial metaphor, marriage metaphor. So her sin is adultery. The supreme sign of judgment is the voice. Now, remember that we had this four times in Jeremiah. Now in Revelation, we see it again. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will never be heard in you again. Oh my goodness. So the human social institution we call marriage was in God's mind before the creation of the world and was devised as a divine pedagogical tool, a teaching tool to teach you and me what human history is really all about. If history began with a wedding in Eden, says Kinlaw, and closes with one in the New Jerusalem, the biblical story runs from wedding to wedding, from temporal symbol to eternal reality. So Kinlaw just straight up says this, that's why marriage is so important. That's why the home is so important. It's in marriages and it's in the home where we have our best opportunity to learn the essential character of God. No other institution combines order and self-giving love like the family. Here we learn to obey our parents in a context of sacrificial and self-giving love. 
Here we can see the possibility that love and law are not by definition antithetical. Ken Law says that the family is God's special tool intended to enable us to conceive the God of Sinai and of Calvary as one without any inner contradiction in him. So we can honor, glorify, and worship him and lovingly trust him at the same time. But then he says this, if the family is destroyed, and by extension, if marriage is destroyed, and may I say in the Western world, it is being destroyed. If the family is destroyed, if marriage is destroyed, God's prime tool to enable us to think him as he is no longer exists. That's why marriage and family are so very important. Now, we're talking about intimacy, and this is basically going to set up the next couple of podcasts we have, because the keys to a good marriage, I just looked it up. I went to a website, and I just said, hey, keys to good marriage, and I, I, I got a website that was like perfect at eight things. What is the key to a good marriage? Number one. Now, this is a good marriage between humans, but I'm thinking not a bad marriage between us and God. Key to a good marriage, love and commitment. Love as commitment. Love, huh, not just a feeling. Love is commitment. Now, feelings will come and go, but commitment should not. Number two, you keep intimacy of life. There's sexual faithfulness and you add in much romance. I think the same way with God. We keep our intimacy with God alive. We stay faithful to him and we always add in romantic flourishes, even with our relationship with Yahweh. And how can we do that? I think it's the lovingly, the, 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 the loving way we talk to him, the time we get away to spend just with him, the way we desire him, hunger and thirst for him. Number three, humility. Number four, patience and forgiveness. Number five, time. Are you spending enough time with God? Are you carving out enough time just to be with him? Now, some people are going to say, well, I spend time with him all day, all day long. I talk with him. That's good. That's okay. But you also need to carve away some special time. Now, that brings up the next point, date night. <laughs> Do you have a date night with God? Yeah, that might sound silly. But basically, again, it gets back to that time thing. Do you have special times carved out for your relationship with the Lord? Number seven, honesty and trust. Are you honest with God? Do you let him be honest with you? And even when he seems harsh, even when it looks like he's doing something that almost feels terrible, you trust him nonetheless. Finally, eight is communication. Be a good listener. Understand it's okay to disagree. You say, disagree with God? Hey, y'all, have you ever read the Psalms? David and, and the other psalmists are having problems with God. But at the end of the day, guess what? They trust this God that they're having problems with. They just flat out say, hey, I'm having problems here. And guess what? It is okay to disagree. It's okay to have problems with. At the end of the day, if you still trust and obey. Keys to a good marriage. But I'm thinking, boy, if you could understand these things in light of what God is trying to do in us and through us with his marriage to us, wow. Just imagine the kind of lives we could live. So we're talking about intimacy on 
this podcast. I just want you to know we're going to talk about it for a couple more podcasts. I think it's that important. All right. This is a wrap today. Been an honor to have you listen to Life-Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman. Hey, I want you to check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship. Also, check out our books at Amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedman. And guess what? You're going to see all kinds of stuff right there. Hope that it'll be helpful to you. And always, always, always tell others about this podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you. My daughter thanks you. My sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. We want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. Hey, we'll see you back here real soon. Thank you.